Welcome, everybody, to the fourth episode of Slow Science. I am your host, Dedrick Gill. Now, hopefully everyone has been doing well. I, myself, am uh, doing great. <laughs> so let's see, what cool thing have I learned this week? Um, and I suppose what takes the cake is something from my immunology class. Now, this stuck out to me particularly because I am interested in microbiology. So, we have been learning about something called the Major Histocompatibility Complex, um, MHC for short. I kind of butchered that a little bit. Major Histocompatibility Complex. There we go. Nailed it. Now, this is technically a gene, but people tend to think about the MHC in terms of what that gene codes for, um, and an NHC molecule. Now, NHC molecules are present on all cells that contain a nucleus. So some cells like, I mean, really the one I can only think of is red blood cells, don't have a nucleus. They don't have MHC molecules. So let's get a little bit back more on topic. Now, what MHC molecules do is present peptide fragments of proteins to your immune system cells. And in this case, we will say that the MHC molecule is presenting to a cytotoxic T cell. Now, this cytotoxic T cell will check the peptides being presented on the MHC molecule. And if they don't recognize them as your own peptides, as in peptides that are not normally in your body, they will kill the cell that those MHC molecules are on. Now, here is the cool part. There is a type of MHC called a class 1 MHC. A class 1 MHC presents peptides from within the cytosol of the cell and, as a general rule, will only present them to a cytotoxic T cell. Now, class 1 MHCs can basically be thought of as an audit of the cell. The MHC will pick a random protein from within itself and show it to the cytotoxic T cell and be like, hey man, I'm cool. Look, you see this peptide here? This is us. I am a normal, non-infected, non-cancerous cell. Please don't kill me. So in this case, the cytotoxic T cell is basically the auditor. Essentially, the class 1 MHC molecule can show a cytotoxic T cell if the cell it is on is um, infected or isn't infected. Okay, wow, this is turning into a longer rant than I had intended. Um, I'm almost done. So let's connect this MHC class 1 to organ transplants. This is where it you know, gets pretty cool. So when you get that new healthy liver, it is chilling inside your body. The class 1 MHCs on that new liver will show off the peptides inside itself, just like how your original organs do. Um, but wait a second, that's going to be an issue, right? Right, it is. The, the new liver is not you. It is foreign. So when the MHC class 1 molecules of that new liver present to your cytotoxic T cells, the T cells, the auditor basically says, hey, I don't recognize that protein. You're not us. Die. Um, and the cytotoxic T cells will start to attack and kill those cells. This is what transplant rejection is. It is your immune system attacking the foreign cells due to the MHC molecules on that new organ presenting foreign peptides. Um, and this is also why doctors will look for transplant matches, 
what they are doing is they are looking for someone who has a similar MHC gene to you and thus will encode similar MHC molecules. That way your T cells are less likely to attack. Now why that exactly happens gets into immunodominance, um, which I certainly don't have time to discuss here. And uh, I mean, dang it, I also wanted to talk about like how taking immunosuppressant drugs to help stop transplant rejection like increases your chances for certain infection and cancers. But man, this has been been way too long. I'll I guess save that for next episode, I guess. Uh, man, I didn't really even talk about the microbiology impact of this at all. Um, and that's the really cool part. That's the, that's the part I was most interested in. Bummer. Okay, next time, it's fine. Uh, we'll get to it next time, maybe. Or I might talk about something else that I found cool at the moment. Um, okay, now that's what I've been finding really cool recently. Now let's do a hard pivot and get into the holy text. This week, we are covering chapter four of Campbell Biology, Carbon and the Molecular Diversity of Life. Now, this chapter is extremely short, like only 10 pages, but the information within those 10 pages is very thick and extremely chemistry-based. Um, it is honestly kind of a weird chapter to have in a biology textbook. It is basically a like really rough crash course on some organic chemistry topics that are not easy, at least not for me. I really struggled with these when I was first introduced to them. Put your chemistry hat on for this week. Um, it may be a little bit of a rough one. Now, I will stress the important parts for what would be expected to know for an intro biology class, but I do plan on mentioning everything in this chapter, even if only in passing, um, mainly because I just love chemistry and knowing these things does help you understand biology. It's just a bit much for an intro class. I mean, if you think about it, organisms are really just walking chemical reactions. Now with that, let's jump into the holy text. Now the holy text starts off by dropping the most important thing to take away from this chapter. Like seriously, if you remember nothing else from this chapter, please, please remember this. The key to an atom's characteristics is its electron configuration. And atom's electrons are what dictate how it will react. Please remember this, I am begging you. Now, I, I like how the holy text just nonchalantly throws out that fact, by the way. Like, there's no definition, it's not bolded, it does not stand out at all, yet it is just so important. Um, it, when, it made me chuckle when I read it. So, anyway, we need to start talking about carbon and how important it is to life. So, how important is it? I mean, just extremely. Um, carbon is so important to life that an entire branch of chemistry is devoted to the study of carbon-containing compounds. This field is known as organic chemistry. Now, the cool thing about carbon is that it forms four bonds which are always covalent bonds. This is referred to as the carbon atom's valence, which is how many chemical bonds it can form. And carbon is undeniably important to life. He, or she, is the pitcher in a ball game. But the pitcher needs the other players, just like carbon. So the other players that help carbon in forming life are hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and phosphorus. Now, obviously, there are other elements needed for life. And if you remember um, back to humans, for example, there were 17 essential elements. But the ones I just listed are the main roster. They are what is used a lot to make life possible. 
Now, next, the Holy Text briefly talks about a possible origin of life theory. And we will go into much more detail later in the book on this, but I think it is worth mentioning here as well. So, some old white guy named Stanley Miller set up an experiment in 1953 that tried to mimic what we believe the conditions that existed on the early Earth were. And I'll spare you guys the details of the experiment, but basically Miller inserted some energy into a gas mixture, and afterwards he condensed the gas into a liquid and examined it for organic molecules, or molecules containing carbon. What he found was a mixture of simple and complex organic molecules, which included amino acids and hydrocarbons, both very essential for life. So basically the guy just like proved one theory on how abiotic or non-living molecules when combined with energy can form biotic or living molecules. You know, no big deal, just a possible discovery on the origin of life. NBD, no big deal. Ooh, and uh, real quick, I just want to briefly mention that one piece of evidence among many that supports um, basically all life evolving from one organism can be seen just by looking at life's general uh, chemical makeup. So basically, if you look at the portions of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and phosphorus in living things, they are very uniform across the vast majority of life. So this points to one common ancestor who essentially had, how do I want to say this, who basically had these same ratios because that is just much more likely than, you know, a hundred ancestors simultaneously evolving these exact same ratios. And now, of course, there are some exceptions. There always are. But we won't get into them here or really in this textbook very much. And like I said, this is just sort of one piece of quote-unquote evidence among many that supports the idea of one common ancestor. Just, you know, kind of cool, I think. Okay. So let's do a quick recap. This will be a short one. Carbon is essential for life as we know it, and what makes it so important is that it can form four covalent bonds with other atoms to form a whole bunch of different compounds. In fact, carbon-containing molecules have their own field of study known as organic chemistry. And yeah, done. So let's move on to talk about some of the structures commonly seen in organic chemistry and in organisms. Man, so let me start off by saying that this part of the holy text throws a lot at first-year biology students without really explaining anything, um, but I will try my best to teach you. As I said before, carbon can form up to four bonds, and it will generally form four bonds. Sometimes it will only form three bonds, but this is less common and rather unstable, so let's stick with um, carbon forming four bonds. Now, it can do this because carbon has four unpaired electrons in its valence shell. Those four electrons would really prefer to be paired with another electrons so that they aren't so lonely. And this is known as the octet rule. Basically, the octet rule is that most atoms above the third period in the periodic table want a valence shell with eight electrons. This is because this is because the second and third electron shell can hold a maximum of eight electrons and atoms are the most stable with a full valence shell. So they want eight. They all want to add up to eight. As long as the electrons add up to eight, the atoms don't really care about the number of atoms they bond to. So for example, a carbon has four valence electrons. It wants four more. It could form four single bonds 
or two single bonds and one double bond. Like that's sort of what that means. They don't care about how they get to eight, they just want eight. Now a quick but important note is that carbon usually forms its four covalent bonds with three to four different atoms slash molecules which are referred to as groups. And the difference between three groups and four groups causes a major change to the molecule. Um, and the reason being that the number of groups an atom is bound to drastically changes the shape of that molecule and its properties. Um, because as I've said before, a molecule's shape is extremely important to how it interacts with other molecules. Now a quick aside here is that you for sure don't need to know this for this level of class, but I want to go on a mini tangent. Now, if a carbon forms four bonds with four groups, it is an sp3 hybridized electron configuration. Four bonds with three groups form an sp2 hybridized configuration, and four bonds with two groups form an sp hybridized configuration. <laughs> now, try to recall that the four types of electron orbitals we've talked about previously, they are the sd, sorry, they are the sp, d, and f the sp hybrid configurations all deal with the s orbitals and the p orbitals combining. So you can look up um, electron orbital hybridization for more information um, if you want to because we are going to end this aside here. Back to the holy text. So now everything I'm about to talk about will have a picture posted to my Instagram because it is complicated, especially the first time you were trying to learn it. Um, so, I mean, really, more than any other chapters, I would suggest going there to see the images to help you understand what is actually going on, what the heck I'm actually talking about. All right, so there are a bunch of different organic molecules, and one reason for this is that carbon can form up to four bonds with four different groups, which allows for a lot of diversity, I mean, purely on its own. And tack on to that the fact that carbon can bond to another carbon forming chains and uh, suddenly the number of organic molecules just explodes. And we are not even done yet because the carbon chains can differ in ways that create different molecules. So the carbon chains, also called carbon skeletons, can differ by the length of the carbon skeleton, um, basically how many carbons are linked together if the carbon skeleton has any other carbon chains branching out of it, or if there are double slash triple bonds between two of the carbons. And lastly, if the carbon skeleton forms into a ring. So I will absolutely be posting a picture about these differences to my Instagram so that you can, you know, visualize it. Now, between these four carbon skeletal differences, there is not one that is really more important than any other. Um, they are all very important. So again, they are important because these carbon skeletal changes affect the shape of the molecule and, say it with me, the shape of a molecule affects how it will interact with other molecules. With all that said, I would not sweat this information for a Bio 1 course. This is um, information that is kind of much more geared towards an organic chemistry course, but what you do need to know is a class of molecules called hydrocarbons. Now, these are molecules that consist of only hydrogens attached to a carbon skeleton. So if you break down the word, this makes sense. Hydro referring to hydrogen and carbons referring to the carbon. Now, while it is rare to find like a strict hydrocarbon in organisms, you often find a hydrocarbon chain attached to another molecule. 
So a good example of this is uh, fat. Fat is made up of a long hydrocarbon chain attached to a non-hydrocarbon molecule. Now what hydrocarbons are most known for is uh, fuel. The gas in your car is a hydrocarbon. The fuel known as propane is a hydrocarbon. Coal is a hydrocarbon, etc. Basically any fuel you burn is a hydrocarbon. So okay, recap time. The carbon atom's ability to form four bonds are what give rise to the massive amount of different organic molecules. At the core of an organic molecule is a chain of carbons that are linked together known as the carbon skeleton. The carbon skeleton can differ in its length, by how it branches, by double or triple bond positions, or by forming a ring. Lastly, a specific type of organic molecule is called a hydrocarbon. It is a molecule consisting of only carbon and hydrogens, and it is the molecule that make fuel. Okay, recap done. Now, this next section has some hard concepts, but let's do it. Isomers. Isomers. <laughs> Isomers are really the last component of what contributes to the many different organic molecules that exist. So isomers are defined as two molecules with the exact same chemical formula, but they differ in how the atoms are connected to each other or in how those atoms are arranged in space. And I mean, honestly, fully do not worry about this for a bio one class. Um, I'm going to give you some examples, but all you really need to know is the definition of an isomer and that they are extremely important because say it with me, a molecule shape affects how it interacts with other molecules. So the first isomer that the holy text covers is structural isomers. But wait, there are multiple types of structural isomers. The fun just never ends. So an example of a structural isomer would be the following. Imagine you have a four carbon skeleton, which is just a molecule with a string of four carbons. Now on that skeleton, an oxygen could either be attached to the outside carbons or to the inner carbons. And this matters. This creates a differently shaped molecule, a molecule with an oxygen attached to the outside carbons or a molecule with the oxygen attached to the inner carbons are structural isomers of each other. And I would suggest that you draw these two molecules out and that way you can see that they are different in their layout. Now this is just one example of a single type of structural isomer. Now the other group of isomers that the holy text cover are stereoisomer. And once again, there are multiple types. So stereoisomers have the same chemical formula and the same skeletal structure. So in other words, they have, they're attached in the exact same way, but how those groups are arranged in space is different. And yes, that matters. So to explain it again, Stereoisomers have the exact same chemical formula and how the atoms are bound together are the exact same as well. The only difference is in how these atoms are oriented around each other in 3D space. And I am not going to bother with an example because trying to conceptualize what a stereoisomer is over a podcast is simply impossible. Or at least I do not think I could explain it in a way that could be understood. Um, I'm not that great a teacher. I will, however, give you the names and definitions of stereoisomers covered by the holy text. And again, this gets into some really tough organic chemistry concepts that I would not worry about. I do want to mention them, but again, for a bio one class, don't worry about this. Um, so first up is a cis-trans stereoisomer. 
Now, these are stereoisomers whose arrangement is um, different across a carbon-carbon double bond specifically. Now, next up is an enantiomer stereoisomer, and these are stereoisomer. Man, this is saying stereoisomer over and over and over again. It's getting difficult. Okay. Now, these are stereoisomers around a carbon that is attached to four different groups. They form non-superimposable mirror images of each other. Lastly is a distereomer stereoisomer. Mm. <laughs> Let me say that again. Lastly is a distereomer stereoisomer. And these are stereoisomers around a chiral carbon that do not form mirror images of each other. And wow. Okay, that was a lot. Probably none of that made sense because it really shouldn't make sense. You don't know enough. But it's in this Bio 1 textbook, so I mentioned it. <laughs> and I mean, even worse to know for all you aspiring OCHEM students is that this was a, I mean, brutally simplified overview of these isomers. It gets more complicated uh, when you really dive in. But again, for this course, you don't really need to know this. Now, here is where I would normally say that if you want to know more about isomers, you can go ahead and Google them. Here, I would honestly say maybe don't do that and instead Google topics that would increase your like basic chemistry knowledge more instead. Isomers are conceptually tough and you need a pretty solid chemistry foundation before you really try to understand them. I mean, for me personally, isomers were really tough to nail down. I still sort of struggle with them. I mean, EZ configuration versus RS configuration, it's, it's a lot. I would rather just uh, think about mechanisms of organic reactions. To be completely honest, I found those much more fun. Anyway, way off topic. Isomers are definitely one of my least favorite organic chemistry topics, but as I've said, they are just so freaking important. Now, before I move on, I want to remind you guys why isomers are important, and say it with me, a molecule structure affects how that molecule will interact with other molecules. And I guess I should also probably do a recap. So, isomers are molecules with the exact same chemical structure, but differ in how the atoms are arranged. They can be split into two um, types, structural isomers and stereoisomers. Structural isomers are molecules that differ in how the atoms are connected to each other. Stereoisomers are molecules that differ in how the atoms are arranged in 3D space around a chiral carbon, generally. Stereoisomers include enantiomers, which are molecules that are non-superimposable mirror images of each other, and distereomers, um, which are molecules that are not mirror images of each other. Now, a chiral carbon is a carbon that has four different groups attached to it. And now that everybody is thoroughly confused, let's leave isomers behind and go on to the next topic. I'm kidding. Hopefully you're not too confused, but if you are, uh, truly just don't sweat it. I did not need to worry about isomers really at all until in like my late second year of college. Now the next section of the holy text I do want you guys to know as we will run into the material a lot. It is basically a list of important groups of atoms that are seen in life and they are so common that they are called functional groups. Functional groups are basically specific configurations of atoms that attach to the carbon skeletons. And I'm literally just going to give you a list to know, and you just have to memorize them. There's no way around it, but luckily there's only like, I think, six or seven. Um, once you get further into your education, you will memorize like 20 to 30. So. But before I give you the list, I just want to say why you need to memorize them in the first place. 
I always hate being told to just memorize something without being told why. So here is the why. When looking at organic molecules, if you can recognize the functional groups on it, then you can predict how that molecule will react, at least partially. This is because chemists have split the functional groups up based on how they react, and the functional groups will always react the same way in a given situation. And okay, maybe not always, there's always exceptions, but a large portion of the time. So that is why you need to memorize these functional groups. If you do, then just by looking at a molecule, you can have a general idea of how it will react, which is just very useful. Okay, onto the actual functional groups. I'm only going to list a few, um, but again, there are so many functional groups and even like entire molecules that you'll at some point in your career might need to memorize. So the first one is the hydroxyl group. It is a hydrogen bonded to an oxygen that is bonded to another atom. So for example, an OH bonded to a carbon. This group is what defines an alcohol. Now the next group is a carbonyl group. This group is just huge and has its own branch of study like in organic chemistry, it's that big. Now it is a carbon with a double bond to an oxygen. These contain your ketones and aldehydes and just so many more. Next up is a carboxyl group. It is a carbon with a double bond to an oxygen and a single bond to a hydroxyl group. These are your organic acids. Next is the amino group. This is a nitrogen with two single bonds to two hydrogens. And lastly is a phosphate group. This is a phosphorus with a double bond to one oxygen and then three single bonds to three other oxygens. Now an image of these will absolutely be posted to my Instagram because I think visuals really help. And these absolutely need to be known because of their just huge importance to biology. Um, and with that, I mean, chapter four is over. However, before truly ending this chapter, I do want to give a big overview of what I want you guys to take away from this chapter as Biology 1 students. I know I listed a lot and like would often say you don't really need to know this, so I want to do just like one last big sum up. So first, you need to know why carbon is important to life and that it generally forms four bonds due to the octet rule. Know that a hydrocarbon is a molecule with only hydrogens and carbons, and that is what fuels are made out of. Know that isomers are molecules with the exact same chemical formula, but differ based on the arrangement of atoms. And finally, know all the groups that I mentioned above. Once again, do not get into the weeds on the isomer stuff. That is a topic for organic chemistry. And yeah, with that, chapter four of Campbell Biology is done. As always, I hope everybody enjoyed listening and maybe even learned something new. Now, if you have any questions, you can send me a message to any of my social media accounts. Gmail is slowsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Instagram is at slowsciencepodcast. And Twitter is at slowsciencepod. Now, be sure to look at my Instagram if you think images would benefit you learning. I would also suggest everyone go to openstacks.com if they want to read some free college-level textbooks. Now, have a great week, guys, and I will see you next time.